Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 955.EX3321, certificate number 33004, Plymouth Rock. How old were you in 1976, our nation's bicentennial? I love talking about the bicentennial. I was only two years old. I don't remember the tall ships. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the... Tall ships uh, in Boston Harbor? What else would I not remember? Uh, Well, it was... Probably car salesmen in Uncle Sam outfits. (laughs) It was a celebration that lasted the entire year, but in particular... It was just a nonstop party. Nobody slept. It was. (laughs) (laughs) America was just going wild with patriotic fervor and Grand Funk Railroad. It was, uh, in particular, the lead up to the 4th of July, starting early in the spring of that year. It really consumed the attention of the nation. You would have been six or seven years old. Is that I right? was, I turned eight that year. So oh, I was seven, seven yeah. and uh, I was in second grade. The perfect age for a big national party. Right. And one that was as clean cut mm-hmm. as the nation's bicentennial. You know, we had come out of the 60s and Nixon and we had Jimmy Carter now. And it we was, just wanted the Osmonds and the Mandrell sisters yep. to sing the songs of this great land to us. We really hoped that our great national nightmare was behind us. But as part of that, there was a lot of revisiting and kind of fetishizing the Revolutionary War, the the pilgrims and the colonial period. Do you think this is when all those 70-year-old Tea Party guys from the early 2000s bought those three-corner hats? Oh, interesting. I think they had those in their attics from the Bicentennial. and they could, That's why they had all the gear. They could just go get it down from their box that says Bicentennial. <laughs> uh, I feel like a lot, maybe some of that reenactment stuff started then. I mean, there was quite a bit of that Paul Revere's ride, one if by land, two if by sea. I mean, I, I feel like kids were taught that stuff in school as a matter of course up until that point, but they, the country itself really doubled down on it. And like I said, I was in second grade in 75, 76. Powder wigs made a comeback. So we really were uh, 
choking on that stuff. Well, that's that's big in elementary schools anywhere. Maybe not so much now. Maybe it was more our era where you got a lot of Paul Revere, Ethan Allen, check it out. My daughter is learning about Harriet Tubman. She has never heard of Paul Revere. That's an improvement, actually. Paul Revere's overhyped. He got caught. He did. It it was his buddy William Dawes that actually got through. We just, Paul Revere scans better, so Longfellow made us remember this guy who who did nothing, basically. Although, and not to uh, disparage the memory of Harriet Tubman, but she probably saved as many people as Oscar Schindler, right? Or, I mean, escorted that number of people. But we're talking about a thousand or two. Here's the thing. Paul Revere, riding around on a horse for what? 90 minutes? Harriet Tubman, riding around the South. For three three years. On her underground trains. Uh For years. Well, three years. Three years. Oh, no, wait a minute. No, I guess she was doing that before the war, right? So, yeah. For a while. I would assume. Listen, I believe that my daughter should be learning. Maybe you should have studied Harriet Tubman a little more. <laughs> they didn't. And Ethan Allen and uh, Nathan Hale a little less. Yeah, we didn't learn about uh, Harriet Tubman as much. Now, maybe if, uh, maybe at the bicentennial of the Civil War in 2061. Oh, wow. I haven't thought about that. There's yeah. going to be a Civil War bicentennial probably in my lifetime. Well, yeah. And there's like a lot of bicentennials that are going by all the time, like the Amistad Bicentennial and the, we, uh, I don't know. What did you guys do for the Amistad Bicentennial? Uh, we had a, we had a barbecue. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we missed the war of 1812 Bicentennial, although you, I, you missed it. I didn't miss it. I, I was, was, I was out of town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of, I mean, really what you're seeing now because the boomers still control the media is the 50 year of everything. Right. The, or the 60. Here's the 50th year of uh, Sergeant Pepper. Right, here's the, here's year the 60th year of, of Pet Sounds. Here's oh, yeah, the 60th Woodstock. They tried to do the 60th Woodstock, right? And it, it just it, fell, it's just not, got canceled. Not going well. Fire Festival. But all of those little talismanic um, emblems of the revolution mm-hmm. uh, all were kind of uh, elevated again into the national consciousness during this bicentennial. Radi- the radio was just fife music it really 100% was. of the time. <laughs> oh, no, that was a Civil War reference. Um, it, it's... Um, is that Revolutionary War? Oh, well... That whole guy on a fife is actually Civil War era, but it gets retrofitted back onto the revolution. And that happened a lot in this country. We had multiple times when there was a lot of nostalgia for the revolution and what that meant, what it brought forth onto this new nation mm-hmm. uh, conceived in liberty. Yeah, even the Gettysburg Address, when you think of it, is just uh, bicentennial nostalgia a, That's little, right. a little early. It's uh, four score and seven. It's 87 annual. It's 87th annual. Yeah, that's the, that's the actual Latin. But the, you know, all of the Revolutionary War and colonial era stuff, of course, is all located in New England and down to Virginia. There's not a ton of Revolutionary War sites. I guess that's why Civil War battlefields are more of a vacation uh, cliche, just because there's more of them to go to. There's a broader geographic range where you can travel to them. Yeah, you can find them in Kentucky. You can find them in in, uh, Alabama. Florida, as far west as Nevada, maybe. And there are lots of, I mean, there were quite a few Revolutionary War episodes in western New York and um, the Great Lakes, but it didn't extend much past the... Appalachian Mountains. And the, most the of the good them stuff are, is pretty much all within Boston and Philadelphia city limits. That's right. And New, New York, you know, Brooklyn, yeah, yeah, Brooklyn true. was the site of a major battle. And there's. Hey, I saw Hamilton. Sorry. 
There is with the original cast. <laughs> no, you did not. Uh, that's the price. The uh, the wages of fame. <laughs> the future leagues don't care. Imagine somebody in 1930 being like, "I just saw." Anything goes by Cole Porter <laughs> with the original cast. Well, no, the thing is that, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda will be probably the best known American of all time, right? The futurelings will be like, Yeah, what? he'll be a giant holographic head yeah, like just, Mao on every building. Just at the Coachella of the future because all of the future will be Coachella. But one of the, I mean, there were the tall ships. There was the Liberty Bell, which is another probably entry in the omnibus. There was a, the original, you know, the hall in Philadelphia. There were uh, the step. Oh, th- this was also the kind of uh, resurgence of George Washington slept here. Plaques on inns. 76 is also rocky. Big year for Philadelphia tourism. You're right. You're right. I didn't even think about that. Maybe peak Philadelphia. Oh, in fact, isn't the fight with Apollo Creed, it's all red, white, and blue because it's yeah. kind of implied to be a bicentennial bout, right? Yeah, he comes out in a in like an Uncle oh, Sam yeah, outfit. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, a big one of those sort of emblems was Plymouth Rock, which was a rock in Boston Harbor, or in Plymouth Harbor, right, which is just south of Boston, mm-hmm. where the original Mayflower colonists, the very first Europeans to arrive in New England, now not the first Europeans to arrive in the Americas, but the sure. pilgrims. I mean, even if you discount Scandinavians coming over, there, there were colonies in Virginia. Sure, Jonestown, and there were... You just said Jonestown instead of Jamestown, and Jamestown. we're, we're going to absolutely leave that in. No! Yes, oh, we're going to leave that in. Jonestown was in Guyana. <laughs> imagine, <laughs> imagine Walter Raleigh or whatever founding Jonestown. <laughs> we have some amazing drink. Ah, Jamestown, all right. And also the Spanish settlements in... Um, yeah, Florida. In Florida, mm-hmm. and, and up around in, like, Mobile even, I think, maybe. Maybe not that old, but... There was a lot of Spanish in the Americas already. Are you sure that wasn't a Taco Bell you saw in Mobile, Alabama, and you just assumed it was an old Spanish Adobe Ford or something? Ding! <laughs> Yo quiero. Uh, but Plymouth Rock became a kind of, not just a tourist site, but an emblem of that, those halcyon days when America was, you know, when Europeans arrived to bring freedom of religion and freedom to their new land, their yeah. unconquered land occupied only by some some uh, bucolic Native Americans who taught them how to grow maize. Just got to put a fish down with the little maize and you got yourself a stew going. Yeah, you got the beginnings of a Thanksgiving. Yeah, this plays into the whole idea of America as a haven mm-hmm. for, for cast out people. So that has resonance with future immigrant population. So that stays fresh. And of course, there's the fact that it's now a national holiday, This this kind of semi-fictitious feast. Right. Uh, And so grade school kids learn about this once a year, which is totally disproportionate to any of its actual historical importance. Yeah, you're putting your, you're tracing your hand and making a turkey. You got to see what Squanto's up to. Everybody wears pilgrim hats. Yeah, you make a a black construction paper hat with the buckle. So Plymouth Rock and the Massachusetts Bay, or the, the colony there, is, as you say, something that, we were. It was reinforced every year at Thanksgiving, and so when when uh, it was explained to you that the original colonists actually stepped off their boats, stepped foot on this rock that still exists, Plymouth Rock, mm-hmm. uh, you really felt like this was maybe one of the more important sites in American history, this founding moment. And uh, never having seen the rock myself, you know, I always imagined something 
you know, very grand. You know, you want it to be, you know, in keeping with this great land. So it's got to be an almost Mount Rushmore-like site. And it's only when you think about the details that you realize you don't really step out of a boat onto a, a big rocky promontory. That is not how boats are docked. No, not, one thing. not at all. And in fact, you would anchor the boats out in the harbor and right. take much smaller boats in and you would search for a sandy patch. Exactly. Rather than a big You rock. would not be like, hey, pull us up by that rock, you, you know, <laughs> so I can do my Neil Armstrong right. thing. I wonder if the moon landing actually cemented some of this. The idea of seeing this footprint of a, of a pilgrim on a new shore. You want to imagine Plymouth Rock had that same kind of Ta-da! Sure, good point. Spotlight comes down from heaven. Right. We we didn't manage to preserve the first little buckled shoe print there in the sand, but the rock, you know, might have been adjacent to it. And Christopher Columbus's landfall has no such, uh, you know, specific landmark that we can point to some beach in the Bahamas or whatever and right. say... some blood-soaked beach. Here's the spot. And it's not even uh, United States soil, so who cares? Right. Who cares, indeed? Uh... Th- Plymouth Rock, and even the term Plymouth Rock was a, I mean, much like Thanksgiving itself, Plymouth Rock was an invention and an invention that in the first place was not the place that the colonists landed. The colonists landed initially in Provincetown on Cape Cod. Because it's it's the first thing you hit. Of course, you're going to hit right. Cape Cod, right? Yeah, and like they, if they need to restock after that long ocean voyage, you're not going to bypass Cape Cod and head to toward Boston, right? And if you arrive at Cape Cod, the eastern facing shore of Cape Cod is pretty inhospitable to landing a ship. It's a it's a sandy beach fronted by cliffs and big dunes, and it's a beach that doesn't have. It's not a shallow beach, right? It's um. You hit the beach and then it drops off into ocean pretty fast and battered by waves and wind. Right. And so, this would have been, they, they landed in the winter, I think. So. so they came around inside of Cape Cod and there's a big hook there. And on the other side, there's a kind of... Uh, that's more, that's uh, more sheltered. Is that where the vacation beaches are? I guess that's yeah, where Provincetown is today, right? That's right. And so they, they swung around inside the hook and anchored there and formed a little... Well, let's not call it a community. They formed a little camp there where they weathered the winter. Because these guys don't know where they're going. They're not the Plymouth Pilgrims yet. They have no idea where they are. Yeah, they they don't know where the Plymouth colony is going to be. They're just trying to find a a place where we can survive this winter. So they're looking for sites on Cape Cod, first of all. Yeah, and Cape Cod is, I mean, there's not a ton of fresh water there. I mean, there are some sort of cenotes or like little lakes and stuff, but it's not sandy. You wouldn't really plant your flag there and say, like, let's start growing maize. They don't even know what maize is yet. So, yeah. So they might say, let's start growing a plant we don't know about, right. but which is the New World equivalent of wheat. Yeah, right. But they didn't say that. They said, let's get back in our boats and sail across this inland bay. See what's over see there. See what's over there. So they ended up in Plymouth, you know, the following season, several months later, and formed the Plymouth Colony, right? William Bradford was the sort of captain of this adventure. He had the biggest buckle on his hat, so they made him the captain. And they formed Plymouth Colony in 1620 and, you know, suffered all manner of privation and made various alliances that often disintegrated with the local Native Americans. And there were all kinds of um, sort of shabby deals, but also there was quite a bit of friendship with the Native Americans 
and we got, or the, I'm sorry, not we, but the initial pilgrims got into, or, or rather, um, intruded into pre-existing rivalries and, mm-hmm. and packs with, with the tribes that were already there. And so disrupted the local sort of, um, ecosystem, like human ecosystem, but it wasn't, there was nothing bucolic about the place. And in fact, a lot of the Native American residents of that area had just in the year or two prior died of plague. (laughs) So this, that sense of Massachusetts is Wampanoag for (laughs) place we have to live because Maine is even worse or something. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so when the colonists arrived that sense of this being a sort of open land empty land uh, they would arrive in what had been villages and just found dusty bones, you know. So it had been a catastrophe. A catastrophe had befallen the local people immediately before. These- before this second new black-hatted catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> when the iconic uh, harvest dinner is not even their first year, right? Is that? Right. I mean, their first year, they were just chewing on on uh, sticks, Mm. trying to make it through. And there were uh, a lot of the fields that had been tended by the locals uh, were now not fallow, but had gone to seed, had gone wild. But there there were plantings, there was agriculture there. And there was a certain amount of like, what is, I mean, the pilgrims were kind of occupying this space. But, you know, pilgrims, their instinct is always to build a fort first. I mean, this is the European way of arriving in a place. And the first thing you do is try and put some walls up. I have seen Pocahontas. Yeah. Uh, I, I was occurring to me that this one reason why this story works is because it's, um, you know, it, it has readings that do not necessarily have to be problematic. Like it, it, if you like it better that these kind of helpless Europeans showed up and local tribes who were already doing just fine with agriculture or whatnot had to help them through the winter, that's a little more pleasant than other kinds of first contact stories about the nation's founding that you could tell. Well, right. And, and in the last 30 or 40 years, it's become very fashionable to tell that story in terms of the European settlers arriving as genocidal maniacs prepared to immediately wipe out the local population. I like this one better where they're just kind of losers, where they're just, they're way out of their depth. They're way out of their depth, but they also bring all of that, all the, the, um, superstition of their own place and time, right? They don't, they're looking for evidence of Providence's intention in everything that happens. They are 
convinced that they are the persecuted minority. They're really ill-equipped. I mean, they're not, you know, for an expedition like this today, you would find people with survival skills, adventurers. Right. And these are just people looking for a kind of a religious haven. Right, they're Bible like, thumpers. They are not necessarily the ones who are, you know, ready for a, I mean, they were on a three-hour tour. Right. <laughs> and they were, um, they, they met quite a few friendly populations there who were more curious about them than anything. And it was only later that in an event called King Philip's war, mm -hmm. a local tribal leader was like, wait a minute, like, and, and not motivated to push them off the, off the beaches and back into the sea as much as realizing that they were making alliances with some tribes that we're in competition with him for resources and, you know, and, and yeah. that series of skirmishes lasted for, for really a couple hundred years, uh, up through the war of 1812, right. Or, or the French and Indian wars, at least through the revolutionary war, but Plymouth colony survived and only survived by the skin of its teeth. But by the time 50 or 60 years had passed, it, they, uh, the colonists had established a, a strong foothold. They'd built a lasting community they had made re relative alliances. There were now a, an, an archipelago of other villages up and down the coast. The Dutch arrived. The uh, Acadians arrived. I mean, there were there were a lot of there was a, a whole network. Boston was flourishing. A colony had been established, and it wasn't until 1715, almost a hundred years later, mm -hmm. uh, ninety five years later that the first mention of Plymouth Rock appeared in any of the many, many documents generated by this, uh, this initial. Yeah, we have, we have plenty of records of the Plymouth Pilgrims, but for a hundred years, nobody mentions Plymouth Rock. Nobody mentions it. It's, it's a little not, suspicious. It's not really a thing among the colonists themselves. And in 1715, it is mentioned as a feature of the Plymouth Harbor, but only as a great rock, which is on the beach in Plymouth Harbor. There's no connection to, to the, the landing. So even people, landing. even people bringing it up are not like, and as we all know. They're just describing the right. beach and, and, you know, oh, also there's a, you know, over to the left of the great rock behind the big fern is where I hid the Easter eggs. And again, if you were heading a launch toward that beach, you would not aim for the big rock. No, exactly. And it's a, and the rock itself is one of these sort of glacial anomalous rocks. A, what do they call those? An accidental? Is that what glacial? Yeah, an accidental, right. A, a rock just deposited it by just, a retreating it just glacier. It rolled down there and that's where it stayed when, the, it stayed. when the snow melted. Um, so it's not like a particularly rocky beach. There's not a ton of these. It is a landmark. Mm -hmm. But it's only in 1741 now, 121 years later. So no one can remember. No one remembers. There's no surviving colonists. But in 1741, there's a suggestion that at Plymouth, they build a pier. Or there's a plan to build a pier. Because at this point, boats no longer wash up on the beach, nor do they dock at a, at a rock. At a they, rock. They would like a big pier there in order to well, sure. facilitate commerce. You got to have a pier. Even though Boston Harbor is just right up the way and is a proper harbor, Plymouth is always make, is always sort of vying for status. There's probably fishing boats leaving from there, and it makes sense. But during this project to build this pier, uh, an elderly resident of Plymouth Town by the name of Thomas Fonts, who's an elder in the community, who's 94 years old. Is it short for Fonsarelli? 
Yeah. No. Founts. Is he like a <laughs> the fonts? Uh, I think it's yeah. I think uh, when I when I see it spelled F A U N C E. Oh yeah, it does look French. Yeah, Founts. But it's probably yeah. So it's some old crusty New Englander named Thomas Fonts, who is the son of a colonist who arrived in 1622. So not one of the very first, but within oh, a couple he's of not years. Even, yeah, but I mean, if he's 95, he's probably one of the last links at this point to that, to that generation. That's right. When he was a kid growing up, there were, I mean, all around him in his community were original pilgrims and his father was very early on. Uh, Thomas says, wait, the place you're going to build this pier covers up that great rock. And let me tell you that my father said, he's got lore. My father said that that's the big rock, the rock where the pilgrims first touched land. And he said, I'm going to assume this is a very long story he's telling where he mentions a lot of people the listeners don't know because I have met people in their 90s. He does a better job than that. He says, before I die, I would like to see the rock one last time. Oh. And so the young men of the colony in 1741 put him in a chair, a regular, probably an Ethan Allen chair that would be worth $80,000 now. (laughs) The original Adirondack (laughs) chair. And they lift him up and they carry him quite a distance down to Plymouth Harbor. And you can imagine word goes out and everybody says, oh, this is great. Like Elder Founts is going down to touch the great rock before he dies. There's a doings a transpiring. And so they carry him down and he uh, reportedly like sheds some tears upon the rock. Touch thou the rock, Elder Thomas. And they, uh, and they decide then that they're not going to build the pier over the rock. They're going to p- build the pier, you know, slightly down from the rock. But again, not from any actual thing they remember, but from this very touching thing of an old man sharing a story he heard. Right. From his father, who heard it from original Mayflower colonists. Sure. His father arrived and they were like, oh, yeah, see you over there. It's the rock. So if, you're, if we're keeping track here, original colonists tell Fonce's father who tell... Or probably they're just sitting... In 1622, there aren't that many of them, right? Yeah. So they're sitting around telling their stories, according to Elder Founts. <laughs> Thomas's father tells him, decades later, and nobody, he tells the town father. Right, nobody else mentions it in all that time. And it is now four degrees of separation from any <laughs> possible eyewitness. <laughs> and and everyone's like, oh boy, Plymouth Rock! He's 94 and he's sitting around by his fire thinking, no one ever comes to visit <laughs> no anymore. No one pays attention to <laughs> Thomas anymore. So he's sitting on his porch and, and some young guy walks by and says, how are you, Elder Fonts? And he goes, well, I'm not so good. I'd like to see the old rock one last time. <laughs> what art thou talking about? So at that point, it becomes a celebrated rock within Plymouth. And in the great style of America... After a while, the residents of Plymouth, not content to have their great emblematic rock just sitting out. Way down at the beach. 90% buried under sand, decide that they're going to move the rock. This is the American spirit. Yeah, this is it. This We're going to improve this. In 1774, so these are revolutionary times, uh, and there's a new fervor. Of patriotism, of patriotism probably, right? right. The, the symbolism of the rock is very meaningful now. It is, and we're now, you know, 100 and... 50 years or 100, yeah, 150 150. years later. And in breaking away from England, we're now uh, very interested in this kind of symbolism. And I'm I'm now interested in the sesquicentennial of the Plymouth Pilgrims. Like in 1770, was there a big thing? And did that help inspire a lot of the kind of uh, 
fervor for independence. You right. Know? You can only imagine that it probably would have been true. There, um, were, there would have been tall ships, of course, but because they were always there. They were there already. Right. <laughs> they just ran a different standard there, up, the, up the pole. There were just no Osmonds. They went over to Provincetown. It wasn't yet a gay summer Mecca, or maybe it was. <laughs> it was gay in the old timey way. <laughs> or both. But in 1774, you can imagine their giant rock-moving technology was still in its infancy. Yeah, how do you, so what do you do with a rock that big? So they dug it out and attempted to move it into the town square, where they, it, you know, of course, this was the shining rock, it's why gonna, not? Yeah, it's going to be in the park in the center of town. Right. don't this. ruin it out in the water. Uh, but they don't, they're not able to move it successfully, and it breaks in half. <laughs> there's, a, there's a terrible omen. Yeah. Can you imagine being the guy who broke Plymouth Rock? Well, they did not take it as a terrible omen. They imagined that it symbolized breaking away from the British Empire. Uh, that was, Religious you know, conviction is very convenient. It's extremely strong, right? If something happens, you can as uh, ascribe let, it to let almost me anything. reverse engineer why God <laughs> wanted this to match up with my predilections. So the bottom half of the rock stayed in the harbor, but the top half of the rock was moved to the town square of Plymouth, where it sort of sat there in the in the town square. And then it, one half of Plymouth Rock. In the early 1830s, it was moved to a museum in Plymouth. I read that in 1834, when they were moving it to the museum lawn, again, you know, a team of auction or whatever, they managed to drop it again and break it again. It fell off the cart. As we've, as we've already established, moving big rocks is a thing, even now, that's a little difficult to do. Rocks are heavy. So if you're going to call your moving company something, don't call it Mayflower, because <laughs> the descendants of the pilgrims were terrible movers. And, you know, the 1830s were another sort of, the War of 1812, which lasted, which you know, was not just confined to 1812, was another resurgence of patriotic fervor, patriotic fervor. And patriotic is when you're very patriotic about the Adriatic. Wow. People in Tuscany are very, very patriotic. I mean, I guess I'll give that a <laughs> courtesy ding. So there was a, you know, there was a museum of early Provincetown and of, of... This is our pilgrim heritage. Yeah, colonial times. And the... the I love when small towns have those, by the way, right. like... Uh, Usually the history is not so good. <laughs> right. But it's like, it's like, here's the rock where Jimmy jumped. Here's a desk we found when the old school was uh, turned uh, into the new church for the Baptist. We pulled down the old wallpaper and there was other wallpaper <laughs> underneath it. <laughs> Have you ever been to the um, the Tenement Museum in, in New York City? In the no, I want to go. It's really fascinating because all around it are people living in those buildings and watching Netflix. And here is this building kind of, uh, restored to its original, almost unlivable conditions where you would go to the bathroom in a pot and throw it out the window. Not really. I was at this, talking about these small town museums, I was in Payson, Utah once passing through. I think it was where my friend's dad was from. And we stopped at a place called the Petite Neat Academy. And it was just some old, you know, school for girls or something. But it had been turned into this kind of a memorial to the illustrious history of of uh, Petite Neat. Of Payson, Utah. Uh -huh. And so it's it's exactly this. It's like, here's an old spinning wheel right. we found. Uh, you know, a, a rod like this may have been on a covered wagon. I think somebody <laughs> somebody who had once been a governess in Payson had wound up on the Titanic. So there was a whole thing of like, here's the Titanic. <laughs> you know, it was just the most random assortment of things. And if you're from Payson, Utah, I'm sure you would have been filled with pride. Super thrilled. I just thought it was delightful. The spinning wheel makes a... 
often appears in these little museums, <laughs> right. right? It's it's a way to uh, to connect us to our spinning past. I'm glad they were all kept for some reason so they could wind up in these museums. Otherwise, these you know, they're all trying to find a new one. Well, do you remember, I mean, this was another factor of the kind of fashion of uh, bicentennial fashion of the mid-70s. People had spinning wheels in their homes as decorative elements. Oh, wow. Do you remember, did you ever go to somebody's house where there was a spinning wheel in the corner? No, I'm fascinated by this whole Betsy Ross aesthetic. It really was, because Betsy Ross pricked her, no, who was it that <laughs> pricked her finger on a spinning wheel? It was It was uh, Snow White. It was Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty. Do you I'm always sorry. get Betsy Ross and Sleeping Beauty confused? <laughs> you know, I've been to Betsy Ross's little house there in Old Town, Philadelphia. It also is is a tourist attraction and you go through and see for similarly dicey reasons, yeah, right? Like, sort of like, mm, is this where the first flag was made? I don't think so. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But um, in 1860, uh, they decided that they were going to start protecting the rock, the rock that was in the harbor. And they built over the top of it a canopy a Victorian-style canopy to protect the rock, although the rock is in the sea much yeah, of the time. you'd think that if anything can survive being on a beach, it's a big hunk of granite. Right, but it needed a little temple over it, a little Victorian Is that just to make it temple. more of a destination? Yeah, so the people come and they, they're, you know, they walk up and down the beach and they go, which rock, where is it? Oh, it's the one with the little it's, gazebo it's the thing. the gazebo. Yeah. But during this period... Uh, the rock was unprotected in the sense that other than this little gazebo, it was just out for you to climb on. And it was the fashion of the time to chip a little bit of it off to take home with you. So everybody who comes gets a piece of the gets rock. It's a little piece Get of the rock. a piece of the rock. That's right. They're chips off the old block, if you will. So, because then you can go back home to Michigan or whatever and tell people, look what we got. And there are little chips of Plymouth Rock on display in many, many locations around the country. Uh, for, for people our age, that's the Berlin Wall. Do you remember right. how when everybody got a little chunk of the Berlin I Wall? Have, I have two chunks of the Berlin Wall that I chipped off my own self. Nice. On like two days after the wall fell, I happened to be there. Like it's got to be something abundant and cheap. And luckily right. that's the Soviet aesthetic. Right. Abundant and cheap. <laughs> so every household in America can have a little bit of the Berlin Wall. But weirdly, although this is a sacred rock and although we're able, you know, we're all allowed to go chip as much of it off as we can, uh, they needed to trim it a little bit in order to build this gazebo over it. I'm not sure why. Maybe the the gazebo design out of the Sears catalog only came in a couple of dimensions. 
So they chipped some of the rock off. In fact, they chipped a lot of the rock off. There's actually, they discovered later, there's a 400-pound slab of it just being used as a doorstep in <laughs> front of an old house in Plymouth. This is like your ingot, but it's actually a little better. It's Plymouth Rock uh, as your doorstop. Right. So in 1880, there was now a new kind of sentimentality, and it was decided that the uh, various parts of the rock that had that one of them was in the town square and in the museum and on a doorstep, that they would be reunited and returned to the harbor. Well, this is post-Civil War. This That's is right. a, you know, we, we, America must be reunified, reunified symbolically. And there is quite a bit of sort of poetic understanding or, or poetic reading of it in exactly that way, that the nation had been rent asundered and now was being restored. By providence, but now being restored by providence. By providence. And also people kept showing up in the harbor looking for Plymouth Rock. They didn't come to Plymouth and say, where's the museum where the where a shard of the rock is? Right. They wanted to see the actual spot. In situ. And so it was returned to the harbor and was reconstructed with cement. And this is actually a pretty good metaphor for America. <laughs> <laughs> sort of slapped back together. It's kind of a kludgy job, but we're doing our best. Uh, the whole combination of rocks and bits and drabs were all, um, ended up being about a third of the size of the original rock. And they decided that in order to really like emphasize that this was the rock, somebody climbed down there and it had had the, it had had 1620 painted on it. That's uh, kind of tacky. Super tacky. <laughs> and they decided then to, to make it like fancy by actually carving 1620 into the rock. So there was no mistaking. So what was graffiti becomes a bit of a, like, like a stat, like this corner of a bank that says established, right. whatever. Sig Plymouth Rock established 1620. It effectively was. There was a little uh, time capsule in the corner that had a newspaper from 1620. But they've actually reverse dated this. This is now 260 years later that, that someone's finally going to certify the date. Yeah, 1620. And it has become by this point in time, like one of the great American sites. In 1920, the gazebo, which I'm sure rusted away, mm -hmm. was replaced by a Roman temple. <laughs> like there's pillars and stuff? Pillars, which um, evoke the colonial style, which was a kind of, the um, neo-colonial was a Roman influenced and Greek influenced architectural style. So like it looks like Monticello or yeah or, or the our US Capitol. Yeah. And so built in that style, a Roman temple which sort of towers over it and is visible. Oh I should say the rock is several feet down from the level of the street. The a seawall was constructed and so you have to go down some stairs. Yeah. It's not just that you pull up and there's a wide sandy beach. It's kind of down in an unfortunate location. It sounds like you've been there. So I have been to Plymouth Rock because as you know, I've traveled around America and I never fail to pull over to look at the world's largest ball of twine or the world's grossest gum wall. Uh, or the, in this case, the world's most spurious boat landing site. Uh, that, well, and also like maybe one of the more disappointing tourist places in the country and widely understood to be a disappointing place. If you've read up, you know, because it's not, people want it to be big and what's left is like the size of a couch basically, right? Well, even if it weren't big, they want it to be situated 
in a setting, right? A, a, yeah. a bucolic setting. We're arriving in the new land. Far shores. And what this is, is right up against a seawall, underneath a, a very strange little Roman temple. And in order to dissuade people from continuing to chip it and steal pieces of it. It's been it's, painted hot pink. It's gated. So oh, you can't go up to it. No, it's in jail. It is, it's, <laughs> uh, it's cemented together. It has the date branded on the side and it's still buried in the sand. The waves still wash over it, but it's actually in a barred jail. Well, the metaphor for America is just becoming unavoidable at this point. <laughs> it's really a gorgeously poetic way of describing our nation's history. And so you lean over a railing. You can't get down to it. I mean, I suppose you could if you were a teen and you wanted to jump down there and, and, uh, and touch it but with your hands. But you're not supposed to. No. Uh, so you know where it is because as you drive through Plymouth, kind of looking around and it's like, oh, there's Plymouth Nail Salon and there's the Plymouth Taco Bell. <laughs> oh, look, there's a, there's a crowd along the sidewalk. And the thing is the waterfront promenade there is, is quite lovely. There's, it's a nice treed area. Uh, but there's a crowd forming around a strange little temple that maybe looks like an outdoor bathroom or maybe like a little <laughs> bandstand. And you walk over and push your way through the crowd and look down, and there it is. It would here, be like if the Liberty Bell was just at the bottom of a well or something. Yeah. Here are some reviews from TripAdvisor. Ah, beautiful. Three stars. Underwhelming. There's not much to see, but at least you can say, I saw it. Uh, if you live in the country, there might be a bigger rock in your backyard. I like how that guy just expects it to be the biggest rock. Because, or, yeah, right. Because America's the best. We should have the best Plymouth Rock. Uh, the next review here is uh, someone with an avatar of a raccoon. It's, again, three stars. Now, this is clearly not Yelp, because these would all be one-star review on Yelp, but it's TripAdvisor, so they, they're generous, right? You, you want to kind of justify your own vacation. You don't want to say, my vacation was a failure. Right. On Yelp, you can definitely be like, the service was a failure. Here's another three-star review. Captioned, really? <laughs> Question mark. Rather unimpressed with the rock. It is much smaller than one imagines, and there is nothing around it to even discuss much of the history. Who are they complaining to is my question. Like, who is, who is the, 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 the corporate body that has let them down? When, when this review finishes off. On the other hand, it was easy to park nearby. <laughs> Next review, three stars. Not very big, exclamation point. Bit disappointing to see it covered by a huge stone building, and it is difficult even to see, which is true. You lean over and kind of have, it's look. Like, is it like the Blarney Stone? Yeah, you <laughs> look through these bars, it? and it's like, oh, there it is. You know, it's sort of not, it's not really shown to its best advantage. Couldn't get a decent photo even with a zoom lens. Lens spelt L-E-N-S-E. -E. Uh, but having said that, it was quite an event seeing such a historic piece. Uh, four-star review. Oh. Nice walk to the rock. Well, it's a rock in a mausoleum of sorts, but the walk there along the waterline is great. <laughs> so this is, gives you a sense of uh, a lot of people go look at a it. A lot of people on road trips are, uh, are a little disappointed, and a lot of kids are rolling their eyes in the back of the station. Yeah, they pull over and um, they do a Griswold. They go like, yeah. mm-hmm, and then back in the And car. then they try to find somebody to get some fried clams for lunch. And that concludes Plymouth Rock, entry 955.EX3321, certificate 33004, in the omnibus. Listeners, we don't know if 
Plymouth Rock will exist in your time. Presumably the rock will still be there, but maybe the succession of gazebos and mausoleums have fallen over. Well, you know, one of the namesakes of the rock, so a lot, there are a lot of things named after the Plymouth Rock, and uh, one of the Plymouth Rock's namesakes is uh, the Plymouth Rock Chicken. There's a chicken named for Plymouth Rock. Which is one of the most popular chickens. It's a sort of gray barred chicken that lays brown eggs and for a time was, I think, maybe the most popular egg-laying chicken in America. And uh, again, it was sort of bred, developed in the in the late 1800s. And it's entirely possible that futurelings are all descended from Plymouth Rock chickens. They're great singers. Are they going to be insulted that we tell them that they are amazing chickens, but named for a crappy rock? Well, for all we know, by the time those chickens rule the roost, so to speak, um, they may have developed a technology to actually get the rock in, in its entirety, in its cemented together entirety, out of the harbor. They can, the chick- these are chickens that can move things with their minds. Yeah, and uh, that's right. They're like they 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 raise up the X-wing fighter out of the swamp <laughs> and actually put the rock somewhere where their fellow uh, chickens can see. In that case, Plymouth Rock would have literally landed on them, like uh, Malcolm X said. That's right. Pl- we didn't land on Plymouth Rock. It landed on us. I can't believe we got through a whole episode of that. 70s patriotism and civics, and you did not mention Schoolhouse Rock once. Well, and that's where I, Schoolhouse Rock is where I learned uh, the preamble to the Constitution. It's where I learned the whole process of a bill going through Congress. Is there a Schoolhouse Rock about the Pilgrim stuff? I'm not actually sure if there is. Let me... I'm going to do the outro while you while you educate yourself. Rock. Okay, go ahead. Uh, even if Plymouth Rock has been levitated to a different place by superintelligent chickens... Social media, we assume, will be dead and gone. Another crappy, sophisized relic of our time. There is a plim- There is a schoolhouse rock about... Just, just in. It's called No More Kings. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. No More Kings. Rocking and a rolling, splishing and a splashing. Over the horizon, what can it be? I get complaints when I don't validate your, your schoolhouse rock nostalgia. Did you know that? Is that right? Yeah. People write you and say, how dare you not be an older generation Xer? It's like when people think you don't appreciate the puns and it's really oh. just that you or you that you didn't get them no i and, get all and your really puns. you just dislike them <laughs> i do right? i do i try and I, you know for, from the beginning of this show i've tried not to validate your punning and it i it, i feel like it only encourages you it's uh yeah so i'm getting the same thing about schoolhouse rock oh yeah and i'm i'm trying not to encourage you to to reference to, it. to take everything back to schoolhouse <laughs> rock <laughs> John and I were on social media. He was at John Roderick. I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter, and uh, he's on Instagram. Collectively, we were at Omnibus Project, just about everywhere you can think of. Not on Facebook, but we did uh, support the Futurelings fan group. We are not carved into the face of Plymouth Rock. I wonder if someone ever will be. Uh, like a little mini Mount Rushmore? Yeah, where a little William mini- Bradford and, and uh, Elder Founts. Have their little heads carved into it? The Futurelings Facebook group currently um, arguing about the French Revolutionary calendar and telling me that there are there's cocaine in shrimps, in river shrimps now. What? Oh, because it's filtering down through our... It's like all the cocaine on $100 bills. I would assume so. It's getting into the rivers. It's getting into the shrimp. And uh, you could email us in our time at uh, theomnibusproject at gmail.com to send physical artifacts, little chips of uh, Plymouth Rock that you think John or I 
Shit, I wonder if there's a secondary market now. I wonder if these are now prized items since you haven't been able to do it for a hundred years. I mean, how you'd have to have quite a considerable documentation of a chip of Plymouth Rock. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, so probably a lot of spurious chips of Plymouth Rock out there. Do not fall for that, futurelings. Um, but you can send us uh, physical objects of any kind by mailing them to the Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. <coughs> Excuse me. Bless you. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Eventually, Plymouth Rock, within its cage, will probably be encased in a further layer of cement mausoleum, then protected by a force field of invisibility. It'll be lucite like people putting their Venom comics. Right. <laughs> and, and then guarded by lasers. Guarded by lasers. Catherine Zeta-Jones slinking under them. Only ha- She's the only one that can get there. <laughs> right. She's, she's uh, you know, nine, now 90 years old and still having to slink in there <laughs> to polish Plymouth Rock. In inexplicably tight yoga pants. <laughs> she looks good for 90. She's like Thomas Fonz. She's like, take me down to Plymouth Rock one more time one more so time. I can slink under the lasers. <laughs> and, and shed tears over it. Uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, namely because we're still on the planet and we would not like to die in a catastrophe, nor our children die in a catastrophe. Okay. Although we've established our great-grandchildren are on their own. Uh, if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence Town if Providence Town <laughs> allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.